Psalm 63, 1 through 5, and James 1, 16 through 17. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry, weary land, there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Glad to have everybody out today. Really happy to have our visitors with us. Uh, I know several of our members are sharing our, our Zoom link with uh, people around the country. Um, great to have Kevin with us from Italy today, giving us the, the talk before the Lord's Supper. So what we've been focusing on as a church in the, the year 2020, as you know, has been the theme of worship. Um, what it means to worship God and why God is worthy of our worship and how worship really lies at the heart of everything, whether we're talking about um, ethics or devotion, um, our identity, um, our, our psychological and emotional well-being, you know, things like um, mental health. All of this goes back to what we think about God. A.W. Tozer, uh, a writer from the 20th century, at one point in his uh, writing career said that the number one thing in terms of importance for any human being is what he or she thinks about God what ideas come to their minds when they hear the word God. And he said, if you could know that about somebody, you could pretty much uh, script out uh, the future of their life because it all goes back to God. So we're talking about worship. Both of the texts that Don just read for us touch on God's worthiness of our worship. The second of these texts, James 1, 16 and 17, tells us that God is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. If something in the world is good or perfect, it ultimately comes down from the Father, from God. And it's this idea of God as gift giver, which we want to explore this morning in connection with our theme, worship. So what does worship have to do with God and God's gifts? God's gifts and our worship. That'll be our topic for this morning. And to pursue this, to explore this, I want to ask three questions, basically. The first of, it, of which is, what kind of gift giver is God? What kind of gift? I mean, I've received a lot of gifts in my life as, you know, from Christmas, from a birthday, and they've ranged in uh, quality, um, you might say. They, some of them seem like they, they involve a lot of forethought and, uh, you know, conscientiousness on the part of the gift giver. giver. Others are uh, gifts that seem to be, you know, um, not that much to them. So what kind of gift giver is God? Uh, appreciate all your gifts, though. All the key lime pies throughout the years, they've all been wonderful. Um, we want to explore this morning what kind of gift giver God is, among, among other questions. And the basic short answer to that question is that God is a generous gift giver. It wouldn't be too much to say that he is gratuitously generous, uh, outrageously generous in the way that he gives to his creatures. We've talked a lot about this in, in past weeks, but God's gift of just beauty 
is something that is, in, in, in fact, profound. I mean, God just made lots and lots of gorgeous, exquisite things that we can observe in nature. And the natural world, I mean, if you're God and you can do whatever you want, and creation can't really say anything about it, God didn't have to make the world beautiful. But it is beautiful. All you have to do is go about three or four hours west of where we live here in Raleigh and go to the Blue Ridge Parkway and drive up and down uh, the, the spine of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And you see what we see on the screen right now, a sunset uh, setting over the Appalachians. Uh, that's not even that far away. And you can see these kinds of views, you know, around every bend on a highway like that. And every overlook is something new to look at that is just gratuitously gorgeous. And, and God's penchant for beauty uh, is, is evident no matter where we look, even when we look to places that are inaccessible to the naked eye, when we have to look through some looking device or viewing device. We, we've talked uh, in several of our sermons and devotions over the past uh, few weeks about how God's beauty is seen in the distant heavens. Uh, we see the, the beauty and artistry of God in the way that he created the stars and the heavenly bodies. And Psalm 8 talks about this. The psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And if we exchange the telescope for a microscope, instead of looking way out in the distance, we look inside ourselves at the most minute level. We find the same kind of wonder and beauty and exquisite artistry inside the human body. Psalm 139 talks about this. The psalmist says, for you, speaking to God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Uh, Jake and I were exchanging some texts a few weeks ago and uh, Jake, we were talking about this sort of thing and Jake said, that his, uh, when he was at Harding University studying, uh, I don't know what, he maybe was undergrad at that point, but he was headed on a path toward, toward pharmacy. And he said his human anatomy and physiology class, um, especially when he learned how the, the human kidneys work, in his words, did as much for my faith as any Bible class that he ever took while at Harding. But when we ponder the kind of gift giver God is, we see not only that he is a God who, who gives us beautiful gifts, but he's also a God who provides us with good gifts, we might say. What kind of gift giver is God? He is a God who is a sumptuous provider. Think about food, something we don't think about often but each of us depends on for our very existence. And it's one of the greatest sources of joy for us. Apparently, God's provision of food lies at the heart of what he does for his creatures. Have you ever noticed that in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, that the account in chapter 1 says more about what creatures can eat, what has been provided for them to eat, than just about anything else that it says in Genesis 1? Hebrew scholar over at Duke, uh, Duke Divinity School, Ellen Davis is a Hebrew scholar. I believe Matt uh, had a course or two with her. And in one of her writings, she notes a shift in the text of Genesis 1 from very uh, sort of brief, terse descriptions of the previous day's creative work and the days of Genesis 
to a downright uh, verbose description of the food that God makes available. This is on day three. So as God is getting ready for land animals and humans to occupy this prepared environment, this world, um, he really outfits the world with, with a lot of things to eat. And so all of a sudden, these terse descriptions change into these ver verbose wordy descriptions. So um, after creating light uh, 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 on the first day, it just simply says, and there was light. Day two, God makes dry land. And then we read in the text very tersely, and it was so. Those aren't exactly wordy elaborations, are they? And then you come to Genesis 1, verses 11 through 13. Look at all the, 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 this wordy uh, expounding on the kind of food God is going to outfit the world with. Let the earth sprout vegetation, God said, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. That's a lot of what we, what humans and animals eat are the things he just described. It says in verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And that's not it. You, you jump down to chapter one, verse 29, and we read an even more elaboration about the kind of food that God is sumptuously providing his creatures with. And God said in verse 29, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Listen to what Ellen Davis says about uh, this text in, in, in uh, an essay commenting on it called, Being a Creature Means You Eat. She says, there is a deep and worrisome difference between the ancient cultural mindset and the culture that all the biblical writers represent. The difference comes, uh, I'm sorry, I, my word is being blocked in the top right corner by the, I can see it on the screen, no I can't. <laughs> Um, there's a deep and worrisome difference between the modern cultural mindset. You're probably like, can he read? It says talking Monty Hampton over that section of my screen at all times. But yeah, it has to be saying the modern cultural mindset, our cultural mindset, and the culture that all the biblical writers represent. So a difference between moderns and ancient people who wrote the Bible. Um, and it comes down to this. The difference comes down to, down to this. For them, for the ancients, eating and agriculture have to do with God. And for us, they do not. Do you think of God when you think of food? You go around thinking about food as one of the most theologically, um, uh, you know, uh, robust ideas that there is. He says, we do not, or she says, we do not consider eating to be a genuinely religious activity. We might bless the food on our plates, but rarely does that provoke any serious thought about the mystery that underlies it. For the biblical writers, however, God's provision of food is a key mystery and a core theological concern. Eating is at the heart of our relationship with God and all that God has made. Every day, taking our sustenance from the earth and from the bodies of other animals, we enter deeply into the mystery of creation. Eating is practical theology, or it should be. Daily, it gives us the opportunity to honor God with our bodies. Our never-failing hunger is a steady reminder to acknowledge God as the giver 
of every good gift. Psalm 104 is a creation psalm, a psalm which has as its theme, along with seven or eight others in the, psal in the Psalter, the idea of, of extolling and praising God for his creation. And, and the psalmist in Psalm 104 positively exalts in God's abundant provision for all his creatures. That's what the psalm is about, at least through this section of it. Let's read some of the verses from Psalm 104, beginning in verse 10. Look what the psalmist says about all the ways God provides for all of his creatures. Verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. In verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home, and the fir trees. In verse 27 he says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And I think that pretty much sums up much of what the Old Testament says about God and his, his penchant for providing his creatures, whether animal or human, with good things. These things were very good at the end of Genesis 1, and he continues to fill us, not just with fuel, but with good things, things that bring us joy. And then there's Jesus's way with food. I don't know how, how much you've noticed this, but in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus does a lot of eating with people, and he does, he does miracles that have to do with food. One of those is the feeding of that hungry multitude in John chapter 5 and 6. There are 5,000 men. It doesn't even list the number of children and women who might have been there. Let's assume there were 10,000, but it says there were 5,000 men who were in this hungry multitude, and we pick up the narrative in John 6, and one of the disciples of Jesus, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a, a, a boy here, because Jesus had noted all these multitudes are here to hear, uh, to be with Jesus. They've been attracted to him to hear his, his teaching, and yet there's nothing to eat. Um, and, and Andrew says, well, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that for so many people? And Jesus said in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Notice what I have highlighted in red. I wanted to emphasize how the language of John 6 in this miracle is pointing out the abundance, the plenteous nature of, of Jesus' provision. It doesn't have to say this in the text, but it does. They ate fish, not just fish, but as much as every person wanted, and they had eaten their fill. So everybody is just sitting back fat and happy, and then they've got some they can gather up, and they fill 12 baskets with the leftovers. So 
human beings have appeared on the scene in want, with scarcity, and Jesus has not only fed them, he's fed them to the brim. And Jesus does something similar at the wedding feast in Cana in John 2, which I briefly referenced last week. Uh, there, Jesus shows up, and uh, there's a crisis. His mom comes up and says, you know, there's, there's not wine. And so uh, it says in verse 6 of John 2, there were six stone water jars that were there for Jewish rites of purification. Each of these held 20 to 30 gallons. So you, you've got six times, you know, 20 or six times 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Similar kind of language. And they said to, uh, or he said to them, verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it, it uh, came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus has taken water and made a large quantity of very high quality wine. And we read that this is his first sign. There were seven major signs done in the Gospel of John, seven being the biblical theological number for perfection or completion. This is the first of those. And he did it at a wedding feast, an event that had a lot of eating. And he did it to manifest his glory, another big word in the Gospel of John. The presence of God, the doxa, the chabod, to use the Old Testament Hebrew uh, parallel, is present in this miracle when Jesus is basically uh, outfitting uh, a feast. That's significant. Now, let's acknowledge that there has always been, as an alternative to this way of relating to God, a kind of false religion that, to be sure, in the name of purity, in the name of holiness, in the name of righteousness, it is denied to God's people his good creation. That's been a long-running kind of uh, rival view of what it means to be faithful. God made creation for us, and yet there have always been people who would deny whatever part of creation they thought uh, made sense to them to express real devotion, you know, uber commitment, uh, a higher level of holiness. Sometimes they have denied people marriage and sexuality in the context of marriage. Others have denied certain foods and, and prescribed dietary uh, restrictions and any number of other things. But that kind of religion, that kind of spirituality, we have to say, is more pagan in its origin than it is biblical. Remember that in Genesis 1, after creating all that food, God says, behold, it was good. Creation is good. I created creatures with these appetites. I gave them a way to fulfill them in a very enjoyable way, and it is good. That's Genesis 1. That's kind of the framework for the rest of the biblical narrative. That's the foundation, rather, for the whole story. And I want you to notice how Paul responds to that kind of asceticism, which would deny the basic goodness of creation when looked at from the correct biblical perspective. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul uh, is talking about something in the future which would yet again uh, have this sort of ascetic, abstemious kind of uh, uh, anti-creation uh, version of spirituality. And he says in 1 Timothy 4.1 uh, to Timothy, who was working as a minister at Ephesus, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. This is a departure from the faith in God. 
devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What on earth are they going to be teaching that's so demonic? It's just this. They're going to forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We often think of demonic, ungodly things having to do with an appetite out of control, don't we? It's when you don't restrict yourself. Here, it's the opposite. It's demonic. It is against the teachings of God. It is deceitful. It is a lie. It involves seared consciences to deny to God's people what he created for them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And notice this, for everything created by God is good. That's an allusion probably to Genesis 1. Creation is good. It is very good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's the way God oriented the world. That's what holiness means to the God who invented it. But I want you to notice something now as we transition to our second point. Created things, whatever they are, are good only if received with thanksgiving. Only when received with thanksgiving. Why is thanking God so important? Is it just a matter of social etiquette? Is it a matter of being polite or something like that? Some social convention? No, it's much more than that. More profound than that by far. The answer is that because through these gifts that God has given us, God is trying to point us to an even better gift. And that raises the question, what is God's ultimate gift? And I want to suggest to you that the Bible seems to teach throughout all of its pages that God's best gift to us, among the many that he has gifted us with, is himself. God's ultimate gift is himself. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted us, his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. All the other gifts, whether the beauty of creation or God's provision within creation or whatever, these are merely signs pointing to God. They're not God. They are signs pointing onward to God. The fifth century North African theologian, Augustine, came to see this, and I want to share this quote with you. He said, Behold, the heavens and the earth exist. They proclaim that they were created. They proclaim also that they made not themselves. You, therefore, Lord, made them. You are beautiful, for they are beautiful. You are good, for they are good. You exist, for they exist. In other words, you can see God's existence, but not only that, his goodness and his beauty in the existence, the goodness, the beauty of the things that he created. And that's actually the point of Psalm 8. A minute ago, we read verse 1. O Lord, how lo uh, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. You know, we can train the Hubble deep-field uh, telescope on all these distant galaxies and see this wonder, and it manifests God's glory, the psalmist says. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, what is humanity that you are mindful of him? 
and the son of man that you cared for him. So the heavens are beautiful, the psalmist says. They inspire wonder, they inspire all, but all of that grandeur just makes God's interest in humans ostensibly so small and, and, and insignificant though we seem, it, it makes that all the more amazing. How could a God who could speak into existence the galaxies be so interested, so mindful of human beings? That's kind of the point of the psalm. And we need to remember that God didn't make us because he needed us. He's God, right? He has no needs. Um, God didn't need anything. He created us so that he could love us. C.S. Lewis once wrote, In God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. No wonder 1 John says tersely, God is love. So God's ultimate gift to us is his presence with us. And that's really how the Gospel of Matthew begins and ends its narrative of the life of Jesus, who was, of course, the ultimate manifestation of God. It's about God's presence. It's about him being with us. That's his ultimate gift. So in Matthew 1, when the angel comes to Joseph and says, Jesus is going to be born to this young woman, Mary, who's betrothed to you, here's what uh, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, a word which means God with us. It's all about God's presence with us. That's the point of the story. That's the gospel, basically. And then in, in Matthew 28, 20, at the very end, uh, almost the last phrase of the gospel of Matthew, look what it says. Behold, Jesus says to the disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. So framing the whole story of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Matthew's gospel might say, among other things, he is God present with us. That's why Jesus came, to give the ultimate gift of God to us, and that is himself. And that's what's so special about Psalm 63, the first reading that Don read for us at the outset of the sermon. The psalmist fully appreciates that God himself is the ultimate blessing. Um, Notice here all the language. Verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. It's not, it's not just that the stars have power and glory. You, personally, God, have power and glory. God's steadfast love, verse 3, is better than life itself. Would you rather live or have God's love? The psalmist says the latter. It's better than life. And then down in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So it's not just the power and glory of the universe, it's God's inherent power and glory that the psalmist is uh, reveling in. It's not just the blessing of life that God gives us, which is a great blessing, but it's God's steadfast love, which is better than life. It's not just the fat and rich food that brings us such joy, but the soul satisfaction, the soul filling, compared to which all the other is kind of an off-brand Pop-Tart. You know, I mean, all this stuff is wonderful, but when we have the real thing, we're like, wow, that is satisfaction. And so all of this raises our final question for this morning. And that is the question, what is the object of our worship? What is the object of our worship? Is it God himself that we treasure or just the gifts that God gives us? 
human beings, even those attracted to Jesus, even those interested in Jesus, even those who would uh, consider being his followers, have always struggled with this. This confusing of gift with giver and giver with gift was the problem that characterized those folks whose bellies Jesus had just filled with all that bread and fish. They go to the, Jesus goes to uh, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, they follow him on the next day. And, and uh, when they found him on the other side, we're following John 6 a little further down in the text from what we read a minute ago, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you didn't understand that the, the miracle of feeding your bellies was signifying. It was a sign to something deeper and more fulfilling. You didn't see that. You just got full bellies physically. And he says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And he said to them, down in verse uh, 35, I left out the ellipsis there, but a few verses down, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a deeper, fuller, and we will finally realize one day much more satisfying and real kind of, uh, of fulfillment than anything the merely created world can give us. Think about yourself uh, in light of these, uh, these ideas in this text particularly, this question of gift versus giver and where our our highest loyalty lies um, in, in the context of what we're going through right now as a nation and as a world, as Kevin alluded to earlier. Um, they're dealing with it in Italy as well. Um, quarantine, social distancing. Uh, we were talking with our daughter, Laura, about this a few days ago. You know, sometimes it, it's, it's, uh, it's times like uh, challenging times, hardship, stress that kind of reveals to us, whether we like it or not, um, where our real uh, trust lies and where our real joy is coming from. Um, I've been, we, we've stopped going to grocery stores and basically doing that, well, going to just do the pickup thing where you pop the trunk and they bring it out so there's no, no contact. We've had some stuff delivered from all the different things like that for the last three weeks or so. And uh, I, I have a confession to make. I got pretty bent out of shape because I couldn't get a watermelon. And, you know, watermelon's just getting in season down in uh, South Florida, so you can get them in North Carolina usually about this time of year. And so it would say on the website, we've got watermelon. And so I would order one, no watermelon, no watermelon, no watermelon. Finally, I get a watermelon. And the other night, uh, Shree's upstairs in the, in the bonus room, and I'm getting to go up, ready to go up and watch uh, some Netflix or something with her. And so I, 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 uh, it's time to kill the fatted melon. And I, I slaughter it. I cut it all up the way I like to, put it in a little thing, get me a big bowl of it, take a bite, and it tastes like water, you know, aptly named. And, and I was a little bit bent out of shape. It, it was very annoying to me that I can't get the things I want. And I'm thinking of all the people in the world who would just like to have actual food, uh, some sustenance. 
And so that doesn't, you know, that doesn't look very well on me. And I, I wonder if some of you might have had similar reactions. Um, what other things are you frustrated about? Not only groceries, but, you know, we have less access to all of our social interactions or our hobbies. And if we become really frustrated about this and irritable, this maybe indicates a problem. We still have God. He is not socially distanced from us, ever. We're never quarantined from our Heavenly Father. And to revisit a topic from a few weeks back, back in February, I think we were talking about idolatry, a kind of false worship. Isn't this confusion of gift for giver the essence of idolatry? John Calvin in the 16th century said, for what is idolatry if not this? To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. Augustine, who came to faith later in life after having spent his uh, younger adult years in the shallower joys and pleasures pursued outside of God's way to put uh, the least uh, illicit spin on that, finally came to recognize that all the best things in this life, whether they be physical beauty, the gift of time, the beauty of light and music, the gifts of smell and taste, the gift of romantic love, all of those things, which are good, God made them to be good, they barely hint at the joy to be found in the love of God. Here's what he said in Confessions, which he wrote after his conversion. But what is it that I love in loving thee? He's speaking to God. God, what is it that I love in loving thee? I wish I could read that word. Not physical beauty. I think it's beauty. Uh, the, not the splendor of time, nor the radiance of light, so pleasant to our eyes, nor the sweet melodies of the various kinds of songs, nor the fragrant smell of flowers and ointments and spices, not manna and honey, not the limbs embraced in physical love. It is not these I love when I love my God. Yet it is true that I love a certain kind of light and sound and fragrance and food and embrace in loving my God, who is the, notice, capital L, light and sound and fragrance and food and embracement of my inner man, where that light shines into my soul, which no place can contain, where time does not snatch away the lovely sound, where no breeze disperses the sweet fragrance, where no eating diminishes the food there provided, and where there is an embrace that no satiety comes to sunder. This is what I love when I love my God. Now, to be sure, there's a sense in which we come to know God, who is invisible, after all, through the things that are visible, through the things that are tangible. God designed it that way. That's what Romans 1.20 says. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, things like that, his godly attributes, his traits, are perceived Paul writes, in the things that have been made. So I'm not suggesting a kind of dualism where we start denouncing all things material. God's called it good. He gave us material bodies. And even God's revelation of Scripture, if you think about it, comes to us through physical, you know, through tangible reality. It comes to us through human language. How do we get the Bible? Well, if you go back far enough, it came through the larynx of a prophet or an apostle. It came through the hand and the pen, physical objects, of the scribe. It came through the, it was written on parchment or vellum. It was written with ink. I mean, on the road to Emmaus, those two who were talking about Jesus but didn't recognize that it was in fact he who, who was walking beside them, 
When did they come to realize it was, it was he? It was in the breaking of the bread. Physicality. So we come to know God who is invisible through, through visible things. But still, and this is the overriding point here, still, the beauty and goodness of God's creation points to God's own beauty and goodness, which is ultimate beauty and goodness. Psalm 27, 4 puts it this way. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist says, the one thing that I really have come to care about is not all the stuff God can give me, but it's God. I don't want his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. I want his presence, his being with me. This is the beauty and goodness that we should desire. Psalm 23, I'm sorry, Psalm 63, 1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does that kind of intense longing, fervent yearning, all or nothing yearning for the presence of God describe you? Does it describe me? Ellen Davis, one more time, in a different essay called Desiring God, and speaking about Psalm 63 in this context, says this, do you wish you desired God that much? If so, then pray the Psalms. Pray through the Psalms. Put yourself in their situation and see the world through the psalmist's eyes. See God uh, as the psalmist sees him. These will shape your desire and rivet your desire on God. For desire, she writes, is the note that throbs all the way through the psalms. Desire for the immediate presence of God, for that saving, comforting, exhilarating nearness. Many of the psalms express a desire that is satisfied, at least to some degree. Those are the psalms of thanksgiving, the hymns of praise. But what many others, like Psalm 63, express is the longing. Longing so intense it hurts, like the ache you might feel one time or another for a lover or a child you long to hold, for a beloved parent lost when you still needed her or him terribly. This is longing that drives every other need into the corner. A soul that thirsts for God. Flesh that faints for God. This is what we should seek. And the sooner we place that desire on God himself. Hold on one second. The sooner we place that desire on God himself and find him to be the greatest joy, the deepest love, and the most beautiful gift we could ever receive, the sooner we will truly begin to live. Augustine wrote this, belatedly, I loved you. O beauty, so ancient and so new, belatedly, I loved you. For see, you were within and I was without. I sought you out there, unlovely. I rushed heedlessly among the lovely things you have made. You were here with me, but I was not with you. These things kept me far from you, even though they were not at all, unless they were in you. Amen. Thank you all very much.